Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Toro. Top-notch custom-fit technology helps tour pros feather and iron to a tight front pin. Now using the technology on Toro's new Greens Master Flex Series Walk Greens mower, superintendents can dial in that same exceptional, precise level of operator performance on even the most contour greens. The Greens Master bale feathering feature lets the operator slow down or speed up by putting more or less pressure on the bale and stay hands-on even through the tightest turns. The melding of the operator and machine continues with a telescoping handle that ensures perfect harmony between mower and operator. Tall or short and the handle's rubber mounts have just enough cushion to prevent any hand movements from influencing the cut. For putting surfaces so pure, they'll make a Toro Pro tip their cap, trust the Toro Greens Master. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Today's podcast is with Somerset Hills Superintendent Ryan Tuxhorn. Uh, Ryan has been at Somerset for over a dozen years. He is a uh, one of regarded as one of the best in the industry. And uh, you know, I learned some stuff about Ryan and some things he does in the winter there. It was a really fun conversation. Uh, we talked a lot about his background, uh, getting a start at Marion. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Ryan Tuxhorn. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Yeah, what was that like kind of fresh out of college working at Marion Golf Club? That You know, I, I, I feel like a lot of people listening to this wouldn't be able to relate. You just wake up and you're working at one of the best golf courses, but then you're working with a bunch of bunch of guys around the same age. You know, what was it like an extension of college in a way? Uh, yes, I, I was I, I took a I was clueless, like coming out of school. I mean, I I. My senior year, we had Paul Lashell senior in for a turf club meeting. And afterwards, I talked to him and I said, hey, I had worked at uh, a small private course in Wilkes-Barre, Wyoming Valley Country Club, which is actually another Tillinghouse course for two summers. And then I went and talked to him. I said, hey, I want to just get a crew job on a high-end course, see what it's like. And uh, I rattled off a bunch of courses. And he said, did you look at Marion Golf Club? And I said, I never heard of it. And that's how close I was. And he's a good friend of mine, Matt Schaefer, should be getting that job if he does you should look into it. And I was like, okay, I happened to be going to school with Steve McDonald who knew an assistant at Marion, Jake Straub, helped me get an interview, got a job, showed up to the first, showed up my first day with a pair of jeans and a hooded sweatshirt on. They told me to wear khakis the following day. Um, and I just got the shit kicked out of me for, I was, so you talked to Scott, Scott and I were both kind of like the black sheep there. We were threatened to be fired a couple of times, but we just kept coming back for more. And, but yeah, I mean, long days and then sometimes long nights and then you get up the next day, you do it again. You say, you're going to take it easy that night. And then all of a sudden you're out there again, gallivanting around, but it was really a strong, like we were all competing with each other, but never, we were always, we always had each other's backs. So there's a lot of team camaraderie there, uh, learning off each other. A lot of mistakes were made. Matt, Matt gave us 
a ridiculous, I look back now, he gave us a ridiculous amount of freedom for the fact that we're at a top 10 golf course in the country. What do you mean by he gave you freedom? What does that mean for an assistant superintendent or, you know, a, someone that's on a crew, maybe not an assistant yet? Uh, I mean, the best way I can put it is I got to work for a number of superintendents while I was there as I worked my way up through the rankings. And I always say that Matt kind of drew the outline of what he wanted. And that, that was, you know, championship conditions, dry, dry as it possibly be. And you work hard, but like every superintendent kind of colored in the lines a little differently. And then even uh, from what I understand, I'm the only during Matt's time, the only individual to go from an intern and work in every single position and then leave for a superintendent position. So even when I was the East Corps superintendent, the amount of spray sheets I would do on my own that he wouldn't even double check. And we're going out there doing sprays all over the place. And I mean, really, when it came down to it, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I went up there, I read labels, I did some research, you know, but a lot of times he just didn't even, he didn't even check. And uh, even we were prepping for, I think, a Philly Open the one time and I had the crew in on an evening, double cutting greens and the greens were fried. They were, they were baked. He came in and I, I always, I always got in trouble with him for being too dry. Um, and he came in and he says, you know, these greens are pretty dry. You, you feel confident with this? I said, ah, it's, it's going to rain. He says, you know, if it doesn't rain, I might fire you. I said, okay, I'm aware. It, it, it rained. We were all right. So, um, and he just kind of let you make your own decisions. He kind of let you hang yourself to a certain point, um, but then he'd catch you. And then he'd point out where you made wrong decisions, where you made right decisions, more more so wrong decisions than right decisions. But uh, I, I – he was tough to work for, but once I left, I looked back at that time and I've a number of times and I've actually thanked him for how difficult he was to work for and understanding he was just pre like preparing us for, you know, it's not an easy industry. So in, in a way, his hands off nature was the best thing to prepare you to be in charge of a golf course. Oh, without, without a doubt. I mean, I, I got to, Somerset Hills. And I mean, I was, I was already confident, but obviously there's a lot, you know, you're nervous, you're anxious. And early on, I had a, a number of like, high up members say, you know, cause I got, I got Somerset Hills when I was 28 and I looked like I was about 16 years old. <laughs> um, and I had a few members say, you know, you're, you're a better manager than you should be at this point. I'm like, okay, that's cool. This place sucks. We got a lot of work to do. Let's go. <laughs> so without, without a doubt, him letting us do our and then uh, like the last step of the way for me um, was superintendent of the West Course, which is a mile down the road. You have your own maintenance shop, you have your own crew, you have your own budget, and now all of a sudden you have like this much smaller budget, but you still have very high expectations. And I mean, the best thing you could get from Matt was you know not hearing from him, or he'd drop he all of a sudden you'd, you'd see him on the course and you'd give out the call on the radio like the Eagles landed, the Eagles landed. And then if he didn't stop to talk to you, everything was good. Just just keep going. Keep Go back to the East Course. We're good over here. So if the members were happy and you weren't over budget on the West Course, he left you alone. That's uh, really interesting. I, I think that would be counterintuitive to what most people think is that at Marion in the, in the staff rankings, the if you're the head superintendent of the West Course, that's a higher position than being the head superintendent of the East Course, which is obviously the famous course. It it wasn't always like that. It kind of became like a rite of passage where you kind of 
prove yourself on the East course. And then you kind of like, you get to go hang out at your own spot. Yeah. Yeah. You get to go hang out and it's like closer to being your own job instead of like every day where even though he, he, he lets you, he gave you freedom, but you're still reporting to him every day. He's still out in the golf course every day, nitpicking things and judging you where the West course, it was, you're still being nitpicked and judged. It was just a little different. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's almost like you're going off to college when you go to the West course, like you get, you're like, you move out from your parents' house, but they're still pretty close. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of like that in between phase where if you can, you can, function on your own or not or you're going to go off to college and flunk out in three months and come back you talked about how there was a moment like he would you know kind of catch you what what, could you could you go into detail of a moment where you know you you were going down the wrong path and and thankfully he was there um do you you have any examples off the top of your head uh i mean his big thing was being humble so just any chance any time he felt that you were feeling a little too good about yourself, he was always there to knock you down a peg or two pegs to the point where like when I actually started getting over the hump and, and doing better, I, cause I made a ton of mistakes, but I've always been really good at learning from my mistakes. I would actually start to get compliments and I would just shun him. I'd be like, I don't want to hear your compliments. Just, just get away from me. And it was afterwards I found out that whenever, cause I felt that whenever I got compliments, I was setting myself up for something bad to happen. And I, basically what I learned was I'd get some compliments. I started feeling good about myself and he would detect it and just, he would shut it down and he would make a, he would make a point. Like he would sometimes in the winter time, he would go down to Florida for a couple of weeks where he had a house and, you know, you might get a lot of work done while he's gone and he'd come back and you're all proud of how much work he got done while he's gone. And he would make a point of finding something that you didn't do or, or finding something you didn't do to the level of quality that he expected. And then he, he would let you know about it and you kind of want to have some choice words for him, but you know, you can't, uh, that, that, I think that was the biggest thing is, is he wanted all of us to be humble and to be appreciative of, you know, where we were and the work we do. So, uh, you talked earlier about how you had a tendency to get a little too dry. So your, your course might run a little too hot. Um, you know, I think that's kind of, uh, an outlier in the spectrum of the superintendent world at large, because as a superintendent, generally, if you keep grass alive, that that's what your job is. But what, you know, what's your kind of philosophy on, on how a golf course should be maintained? Uh, Well, first I'm going to just go politically correct and say, I think it depends on the golf course and also depends on the membership. Because a superintendent's, to me, a superintendent's job is to provide the golf course that the membership wants while keeping plant health in mind. Fortunately for me, when Somerset Hills was looking for somebody, they wanted somebody to bring, to come in and dry the place out. And to me, Firm and Fast is broken into like three categories. There's, there's Firm and Fast, but everything has to be green. There's Firm and Fast, and we'll tolerate some brown, but like, let's keep it in check. And then there's the whole like down and brown let's let things rock. And I, the membership wanted to take things, wanted drier conditions. They wanted championship conditions. And for me, I want things as dry as possible. My whole agronomic plan completely revolves around putting down the least amount of water as possible. 
uh, whether it be through fertility or wetting agents or a proper irrigation system or just training the grass. Um, and that's, I, I want the place dry. I really don't like, I think when you played, we just got in a half inch of rain a couple of days before. I wasn't too happy about that. Eh, still bounced. Can we go back to what you said about training the grass? Yeah, just uh, acclimating the grass to being in conditions of being dry. And and if the grass can't acclimate, then it shouldn't be there. I mean, in 2010 at Somerset, uh, we had a really dry stretch. And I I baked out the fairways way, way too far to where, I mean, balls are hitting and there's tufts of dust coming up. And everyone's like, this is spectacular, but is everything okay? And I'm like, it's my second year. I'm like, yeah, I think so. I don't, (laughs) sure. And we ended up getting like a five inch rain event. And the next day you go out and you could smell dead grass. Like literally you left the shop and you could smell dead grass. This was like in early July. We what does that void. smell like? It <laughs> Rot. <laughs> is, that, is that the worst smell that you could smell as a superintendent? Well, it depends. Is it, is it grass that you don't care about or is it grass you care about? But come the fall, we got new bent grass and all those voids. And I tell you, those fairways were so much better the following year. So it's another thing I, a pet peeve of mine is people, people in their moisture meters and their, and their magic numbers of what they water to. Like, that's just so not for, for the lay person who might not know a moisture meter is the little, the thing you see sometimes superintendents or ground crew members walking around punching into the green, right? It's like got a little pole on the bottom of it and it looks almost like a like a gardening tool like if you were going to do like some manual edging, right? Correct. And it, it basically, it, it gives you back a number that tells you what your moisture level is on the greens. And a lot of, and it's become, it's become a tool that does all the thinking, I feel. You know, instead of just being like a tool in the toolbox, like you got a hammer, you got a screwdriver and they all kind of have what they do. And, you know, you hear people say, oh, our number is a 14. We run, we water to a 14 and all this and that. And we use moisture meters, don't get me wrong, but they're just, they're a tool in the toolbox because every day is different during the time, you know, clouds, humidity, time of year. So your number is going to be different no matter what. And then even if somehow you do figure out what your number is, wouldn't you want to push your grass to learn to be a 13 and then learn to be a 12 to just keep things as dry as possible? So I don't know where I was going with this, but You're training I just grass, training grass. I saw, I, I personally saw it firsthand at Marion, you know, drying things out and just te- like, like I said, everything revolves as Somerset is about putting out as little water as possible. And our fairways went from burners to now where I barely have to water them. And more times than not, I only water them because I get carts. If I didn't have carts and I didn't have to deal with cart marks going through wilt areas, I would really just let them go. So so carts lead to more inputs on a golf course. Well, yeah, it's, it's if you have grass that's wilting on your fairways and a cart drives through it, you are going to see those two tire marks for days. So a lot of times we'll run just a little bit of, if it's, if we're really hot and dry, we'll run a little bit of water after lunch just to kind of take the sting out of the grass. So we don't have that where if it was just walkers, I could kind of take things to another level, but then, you know, the whole like law of diminishing return, you know, we keep them, obviously our fairways are cut really tight. So no matter what, they're fast, even when they're on the wetter side, um, so if we keep them really dry, but just short of getting cart marks, 
you know, they're still plenty firm. People are still hitting their balls and they're running through fairways. So that little bit extra we get, it's just, it's just not worth it. It would be a big deal though. Yeah. I know you, you probably haven't maintained a course in California where you had like water restrictions. Carts would make a big deal, right? On your water usage. Oh, no doubt. I mean, if, if we, uh, I'm, I'm kind of priming the golf course for a drought year where we have restrictions, you know, that's like, that's my goal is like teaching the, getting it ready for all of a sudden that day where they're like, you can't water your fairways. And I'm going to be like, you know what? My fairways are going to be fine, but I'll tell you right now, there's not going to be any carts going out. That's a, I mean, I think that's a logical thing to, to think about, right? That's, that seems like a prudent thing is like, you never know when there might be a water restriction place. So like, why not have your grass ready to go for that? Yeah. Yep. And, and then the impact on carts in the rough is much different, right? Well, I mean, yeah, but the same thing, we don't really go out of our way to irrigate the majority of the rough. So when we do get into dry periods, I'd rather not have the carts in the rough, but I encourage everyone to drive on the fairways. So, I mean, most of the car traffic is on the fairways and we kind of, we try not to use too much signage on the golf course because we want to keep it simple out there. We don't want to clutter it up with stuff. So in some of the areas where we do get carts in the rough, we do make a point of getting some water there during those periods. So you you didn't know what Marion Golf Club was? <laughs> no. So you get you get Somerset Hills. Did, did you know what Somerset Hills was before you got there? <laughs> you didn't play golf. No, golf golf is terrible. It's a horrible sport. Um, you still don't play. Me, I mean, I go out there and I swing a golf club once in a while, but I wouldn't call it playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to Marion Golf Club. I'd never heard of it. And then when Somerset was opening up, I had a, a salesman call me up and tell me about it. I had never heard of it, even though I grew up in this area. And then uh, actually when I, back, this is back when we had Nextels, you know, you had your radio oh, yeah. and you had your next, you had your Nextel. I thought Nextel next- was a huge advance in, in superintendent industry. Oh, it's huge. But like if Matt called you over the radio, typically it was all right. But if he called you on the Nextel, it usually wasn't good, but, uh, I next told him and I said, Hey, I heard, uh, of course, but I, I was at the point where I was looking to move on and I, had, uh, I was sending the resume out and I said, of course called Somerset Hills country club just opened up. Uh, what do you think? He's like, ah, you can look into it, but I don't think you got a shot in hell, but, uh, sure. <laughs> so it's actually, there's more of a story to it than that. The next day he met up with me and, and, and gave me some names to get my resume out to. Um, and it just, it worked out, but no, I hadn't heard of Somerset Hills country club. How do you, do you, you know, I, I went there for the first time a couple of weeks ago and I, I just was like, you know, blown away with the architecture as somebody that wasn't a big golfer. Did you, how do you, you know, maintain a golf course without like, you know, playing it that much, like with the idea of architecture, was that just learned at Marion? I think it was learned. It, it, it was learned to Marion. Um, I get feedback from people. I discuss conditions and I, I kind of joke around like when Somerset Hills is playing the way I want it to play, like mentally I can go out there and I know exactly where you should put the ball, how you should play a hole. I just can't physically do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, like when I got to Somerset, my, my first assistant who I had for years, Joe Sosha, uh, he was a really good golfer, so he would go out and play. He always would kind of come back in with some feedback from the course. So I'm just, I'm always listening. Um, you know, when you came out of Marion, 
you were taught to punish golfers. Like they should not, like they should finish their round and just shouldn't ever play again. Like it's, it's meant, it's meant to be punishment. And it, it, it took, it took a few years to understand that it's okay for them to go out and have fun. It's okay for them to make a few birdies and, and that, that, that helped a lot. Now, with that being said, I want the course, like when we have events, I want the course to hold up. Ah. You know, it's interesting you said that because Curtis James, the current superintendent at Old Elm, who, you know, you worked with, we talked about earlier, um, he said on this pod also, like, you know, I worked at a lot of places, whether it was Wingfoot or, or Marion, where hard golf and punishing golfers, and now I'm kind of on a quest to make it more fun, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I still want it to be difficult, but the biggest thing is I want it to be fair. You know, we have a our the green department has a really good relationship with the golf shop at Somerset Hills, and it always has. And so I talked to those guys a lot. And I just remember the one time they came in from a, a local tournament. I won't say the name of the course, but they came in and just said, "Oh, the place was immaculate. It was in fantastic condition. It was firm and fast." And then they went off on about ten minutes about how horrible the pin locations were. And I was like, here's someone that put out a great product and you have these really good golfers come play your golf course. And all they have to talk about is the pin locations. So that, that's not, that's not what I want. I want the golf course to just represent itself. Like we had a superintendent event last week and obviously we had the greens tuned up this and that. And we put the pins in the most basic locations that they could be, which, I mean, you played Somerset. I mean, there, there are no easy locations but we put them in our easiest locations because I don't want people walking off the golf course talking about tricked out pins or tricked out conditions. It should just be, here's your obstacle and see if you can score on it. Well, especially like with that, because you're coming to a golf course that, you know, one of the things with great golf courses is the more you play it, the more you know and understand it and you know places you can't go. But you had a bunch of people probably playing it for the first time coming out. And they don't oh, know yeah. where the bad places are. And and that's that can be a frustrating thing is when, you know, and it sounds like your golf shop went through that a little bit, is like when a golf course is really set up hard for a bunch of people that have never seen it before, they don't know where to miss. And they don't know that you can't miss, you can't hit it 30 feet above the flag to the left. And, you know, you're probably not going to be able to keep it on the green. And that could be a really frustrating experience for people, even when it's in perfect shape. And then it comes back on, on the superintendent. Yeah, no doubt. So that's why if we can at least have the pins for that, be easier. But uh, that, that's something that took, took some time to, to, to understand that like, Hey, it's okay for them to go out and have fun. But like, there's definitely certain events where we want to make it more difficult, but at the same time, fair. How do, how does uh you know obviously for people that haven't been to Somerset Hills you have a front nine that's that's very open it's um kind of in like what I imagine was at one point like a farm field and then the back nine goes back into a wooded area where you know it's much more kind of cut out of woods it, it, for you know no more elegant description than that how does your agronomy needs uh, are they different on the nines? Do you have to maintain them differently because, like, obviously, one nine gets way more sunlight than the other nine. Like, does one nine dry out faster than the other nine? Like, is or do you just do you kind of use the same approach everywhere? Um, for the most part, it's similar across the board. With that being said, 
without a doubt, uh, a handful of greens in the back nine take longer to dry out. So my more skilled hand water typically goes to the back where it takes a little bit more finesse to get them dried out and get them more evenly dried out. In the early years, we made a point of um, amending the soils more on a, a bunch of the back nine greens to help them dry out quicker. Uh, so that being like you added a lot of sand? Yeah, yeah. So more, more drill and fill applications on, on a handful of greens. So, but now, I mean, now, I mean, I'm in my 13th season now. So from lots of years of cultivation and doing everything that we've done, the biggest difference now is just, it's just how we water, whether it be hand watering, you have to have someone that's not nervous on the back nine and won't just arbitrarily sling water. And then, you know, when we do get things drier and on the occasion we run water at night, there's a lot of times that those back nine greens don't get any water at night. Since I, since I've been there, I, I can't stop thinking about the greens. Um, I got, I, what a question I wanted to ask you was it, what's your, what's your favorite green out there and why? Uh, my favorite green is, I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean, five just because of the big ridiculous hump that's in the back. I mean, any, I always like to bring people up to the green and just see what the first thing that comes out of their mouth when, uh, when they see the hump, um, eight, just because it's so much trickier than it looks. That, uh, that one's four. so cool with all the little, the little, like they're almost like Maxwell rolls in them. Like that. There's like six of them. Yeah. And then, and then probably four, 14, just because a, a bunch of the greens, when they get really kind of dried out and fast, like where you're, you can't be too creative with pin locations where 14, it seems like it's such a big green and there's so many things going on that you always can have some variety with, with the pins. And even though like the whole green goes uphill, it almost plays downhill. The amount of people that hit from the fairway and roll off the back of that green to death is incredible. Yeah. That is sneaky. It's, it's one of those, it's because it's built up in the back, but then the whole slope of the whole property goes the other way. I mean, it definitely goes, it's just, it's weird. I, I, I can't explain it. I mean, cause you're coming from uphill, then you get on the beginning of the green and the whole green goes uphill, but yeah. You know a what lot of people, people probably just... think is that green's faster than the other ones. They probably <laughs> think it's your fault. Oh yeah. I'm out there double cutting that one every day and, and not cutting the other ones. <laughs> that, that goes, that, that goes back to my fair golf and not tricking things out a uh, little spiel. Um, yeah, that, it's an it's an amazing place. What did you say about your maintenance style? What was the word that you used that you like to the aesthetic that you're going for? Uh, it's there's no there's no actual what, it was aesthetic. Like something rough. Something? Oh oh, manicured ruggedness. Manicured ruggedness. That and it fits like the place as well. Like that, I would say that it's a rugged property. Yeah, we have a lot of fescue architecturally i mean it's not consistent we got a lot of different things going on with bunk, how the, you know the bunker styles and each hole is kind of different so uh it's not meant to be everything's just perfect it's meant to it's meant to be a golf course and i mean even like the rough the rough has gotten amazing over the years we don't really water it that much and because of that everything that's there is just happy and i very rarely have to put any seed down and it's it's typically nice and lush lush uh without without really doing a whole lot doing a whole lot to it hey you got apple trees what are what what kind of apples are they 
Oh, we got uh, Red Delicious, Gold Delicious, Macintosh, McCoon. There might be some Brayburn in there. Uh, there's probably a couple others. That was, I think, grandfathered in. I think that was there when the course was built. And then I know years ago, prior to me getting there, they made a point of reestablishing the grid. I have an old picture in my office of what the grid used to be. And it's it's important. I mean, we, we treat the apple trees. We, we so keep you, you're an apple farmer also. I am an apple farmer. Correct. I also, uh, I also do maple syrup in the winter and it, uh, the whole, all the trees in the front entrance are all sugar maples. And I, and I tap those bad boys in the winter time and then sell to the membership. No way. Yes way. Does it, does it like, is it sold from the pro shop or the grounds, the maintenance shop? Uh, it's sold out of the golf shop. It, they, they order online and then my, my, my head, my head professional puts in a nice little bag and, and, but we do all the, uh, the tapping, the the cooking down process, bottling, labeling, and then uh, the, we we are farmland assessed. So we sell wood to the membership, and I also sell maple syrup to the membership, and it gives us a tax break. So eventually, I think I'm going to run out of trees to cut down, and I'm not going to have as much firewood. So I have to I need the maple syrup to augment that. That's wild. I, I mean, you're maple. It, so that's what you do all winters: make maple syrup. Well, it's not not all winter. I mean, I'm out there cutting down trees when the weather allows. But typically, like mid-February, we tap the trees, and that goes to about mid-March. But if the weather's not so great, you know, you might find me sitting over a pot. Makes the shop smell delicious. Did you know anything about making maple syrup before this job? No. What was what were the like early bottles? Did you have like bad maple syrup? No, we didn't have bad maple syrup, but we do. It is better now. It is better now because you got you got to be careful with uh, sugar sand. You don't you don't want sugar sand. That's 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 like my uh, my arch nemesis when it comes to the the maple syrup conglomerate. So so you did sixty bottles last year. Do you have a goal about this year? Do you do you like want to do one hundred and twenty? Like, is there what's your kind of capacity? Do you know what your capacity is? Like, is this something an enterprise? I mean, I imagine that that you could sell it online and golfers would buy it from all over the place. I, I'm trying not to overdo it. It's kind of like fun, but I I would I mean because it also depends on the year. Like different years, you get different sap production. And, and so like with things generally getting warmer, doesn't really work in, in, in my favor. So it kind of depends on our production, but I mean, I would say, you know, 60 bottles is a good point, but I mean, could we go get up to a hundred bottles? I mean, why not? I imagine, you know, you might have a guy eventually on your staff that like you're in the summer, you're like, God, that guy's dragging ass. He's, but I'll tell you what, he's really good at making maple syrup. <laughs> Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. Today's serious golfers keep their energy levels up with healthy snacks. And just like trail mix and water get us through a round without flagging, Toro's new Workman GTX lithium utility vehicle is powered by a tenacious long-lasting battery. The Workman GTX lithium renders daily battery maintenance a thing of the past. The same for replacing lead-acid batteries for a couple of thousand bucks every few years. The Workman's GTX lithium battery lasts six to eight years with no degrading on runtime during its lifespan. Saving time and money. Let's see Trail Mix do that. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo today. Now back to Ryan Tuxhorn. Now that you've been there for 14 years? Yes. 
what how's like what you're working on has it changed like what were the early years like middle years and i'm sure the years are going faster i have a theory that it becomes smaller parts of your life um but that's a different thing but i'm sure the years are going faster but like how is what you've been focused on as a superintendent obviously you know you've got like your core things that you're doing but what are the what have you been doing over the years that's changed well, I mean, the early years, the, the, uh, I inherited a golf course that was just, it was in really bad shape uh, in, a, in a number of different fashions. Um, like I had heard horror stories coming in. Um, so I, the first three, four years, it was literally just greens, tees, and fairways. Greens, tees, and fairways, I don't, I'm not too worried about much else. I mean, we started getting into the architectural work, working with, uh, I think, probably Brian Slonick with Renaissance Golf. Yeah. And doing like some, as my former green share would say, uh, small, like low cost, big impact work um, when it came to fairway lines and starting to renovate tees and, and green expansions. But it was just greens, tees, and fairways. I started establishing more fescue because the bulk of the fescue that was there wasn't, it, it wasn't grown out when I was there or it wasn't there. So we started doing that, but we didn't put too much work into it. And then I think it was like my third or fourth season, my green share is like, are you going to do something with these fescues? And I was, it, it, it kind of pissed me off. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do something with the fescues. So we just kind of made our way out. You know, we started kind of started at the center of the golf course and then worked our way out into the rough and the fescues and a lot of projects, a lot of projects to kind of bring back the course to play the way it was meant to play. And uh, now it's, I mean, knock on wood within reason greens tees fairways rough kind of take care of themselves the fine fescue kind of has my attention all the time because you can have a really good agronomic plan and it'll help make everything better but then once you get to the fescue you can't have a good agronomic plan you have to have a shitty agronomic plan to grow thinner fescue and then that leads to all these other issues and that it's a challenge that i both hate and love at the same time so that that's the thing that you you have to focus on the most really for, for me, when I'm driving around, most of my attention goes to the, the five fescue areas these days. Yes. And it, does it cost a lot to maintain fine fescue versus like, you know, if it say it was just ir- your irrigated rough without, you know, I know it's probably not irrigated very much, but say it was just rough versus fescue. Is it labor and time much more intensive? Because I feel like that's always people to say, oh, that's a low maintenance area. But I've never actually run the numbers and tracked the labor. I mean, um, you know, chemical wise, you know, with herbicides and pre-emergence and all this and that. I mean, the fescues probably get more, but the rough, you're cutting it every single week and you are applying materials to it. Um, I always say like there's fine fescue areas and there's native areas. You know, so like we're, we're, we have what I like to call fine fescue areas. Like we make a very conscientious effort to have almost a hundred percent fine fescue as weed free as possible, you know, bark without the bite. Like if you hit your ball in there, you should find it, but it's a more difficult shot compared to some places that have native areas that are meant to be low maintenance areas and meant to not like it's out of play. It's not really meant to be touched. So cost wise, I, it's definitely, we don't do it for a cost savings. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, that makes sense too. De- denoting like your fine fescue areas is really part of your your playing experience. It's part of the playing, 
you know, the golf course as as opposed to like, I think that's probably where a lot of confusion comes like native versus I, I like the way you kind of delineated the two because they are different because you go into some native and you're like, this is a jungle and it's two yards off the fairway. And that's maybe an issue. But if it's, you know, if you're, you mapped one 45 yards, right. And you can't find it. That's not, you know, it's too bad. Yeah. The, yeah. The fescue for us, I mean, it, it does a couple things. One on the front line, as you said, where it's more open, it kind of separates whole, the holes from each other. You kind of, you get those borders where the fine fescue turns that gold color and it kind of delineates the holes from each other. Like when you come down the front entrance and like, you can see there's 10, there's four, and they're kind of, they have the, the fine fescue kind of separates them. And then on top of that, just from a golf course, I mean, our biggest defense is our greens. Um, but we in general have pretty big wide fairways. We don't have a ton of rough, but the fescue also acts as a, as a defense, but it's not meant to some areas of fescue obviously are a little on the, on the thick side, which we're constantly working on, but they're meant to be Steve McDonald once told me good fine fescue should be a half stroke penalty. And I think that's a good way to look at it. With your master plan that you guys are working off of, you know, how, how far would you say, how much more do you have left on it? And do you ever think you'll be done with the master plan, the restoration work? Well, first off, we never did a master plan. Never, no master plan. Okay. No, the, the, I think Brian Slonick has the master plan in his head, but there's never actually been, a, a, and I, and I, I think like I, and I think I, I know what his master plan looks like. Um, cause we've been working together long enough. He's a fellow Detroit lion fan, by the way. Um, which helps. Yes, um, can, can pedal pedal away with your master plan in your heads and your misery. <laughs> Quick. So first day I met him, we walked the golf course. I'm just going to keep this short. And we had a great day. And as he's leaving, I had a Detroit Lion license plate. And he stops in his tracks. And he looks back at me. And this is, like I said, the year after they went 0-16. And he looks at me with a smile. He's like, you, are you a Detroit Lion fan? And I said, listen, man. We had a good day. Let's not go ruining it now. He's like, oh, 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 I'm Traverse City, Michigan. I'm a Lions fan. I'm with you. And, uh, you know, we've had, we've had some business where he comes into work and we, like, purposely time it around a weekend so we can go watch the game. It's, uh, like, in, the, in it's like the stepbrothers moment where, yeah, like, yeah, did, did we yeah. just become best friends? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. First visit, we, we got there. Now, it's I, I don't want to make it long-winded, but, like, he came in and it's – it, like I remember our first walk, he started talking about expanding this fairway and expanding that fairway. And we were on number two. And I, I said, Hey, are you going to help me pay for all this? I said, you know, mowing chemicals, fertility, etc." And he says, well, what do you propose? And like I said, we're on number two, the Redan hole. And it used to have about an extra 50 yards of fairway. And I'm like, right here. I'm like, what is the point of this ferry right here? And he looked at me, he said, well, that's for the bunters. And I said, the bunters. He's like, yeah, the, the bunters. And I said, what, do we really need it? And he's like, and that's where we just went into mitigation and expanding, taking from the fronts of fairways that really aren't in play and, and bringing out the edges that had narrowed over the, I mean, all the fairways that Marion based, uh, not, sorry, Marion, not at uh, Somerset Hills basically became like just runways. They were straight. They lost a lot of that character. So we started going in and expanding all basically every fair, every single fairway at Somerset has received some kind of fairway expansion slash mitigation. And we did the majority of it without actually increasing acreage. When we got to the end and we started getting into some bigger ones like on um, uh, seven 
2018, that's we, we started leading to, and 17, we started getting some increases in acreage then. But that's kind of what got things going. And, you know, that got the membership excited. And then we decided, hey, let's take on a, a, some tea complexes. Let's, let's, let's get some. Uh, so you did some stuff. You, you showed them some good stuff. And then you told the membership, hey, why don't you open up the pocketbooks? We we built we built some confidence. They like what they're see, what they're seeing, and uh, give that give them credit. They then just want more, mm-hmm. and then so then we decided to do some tea comp, and we did all the work in house with Brian. I haven't used a contractor for really just about anything. Even now with our in house bunker restoration, we're just we're doing it in house, um, and we got some tea complexes done, and that built more c- confidence in the membership, but also built confidence in myself that hey, you know, we can do this. I remember the very first tea that Brian did. And he gives me a call and he's like, Hey, number three is too rough grade. You guys can come in now. And I walked, I came over and he was, he was going to use a bulldozer. And I'm like, how good can you be with a bulldozer? I didn't know. And I get to number three and I'm like, you call this rough grade? I'm like, this is, this is pretty good. He's like, Oh, you know, but it's funny. Like the early tees when he didn't have, it's not that he didn't have confidence in us, but we hadn't done it before. He left those tees in like really good condition. Once we started getting better at what we're doing, he didn't start leaving him in the best condition. He's like, yeah, it's good. You can take it from there. So I like, I, know, I just, Brian comes in, he makes a big mess and then we have to clean up after him. Well, you're his, you're effectively his editor now. Like I, <laughs> I used to write, I, I would write really well and, and go through the things I wrote. If my wife was editing, who knows nothing about golf, like I would do, you know, four or five passes and I'd give it to her. But now that Garrett, who does some pods out here, edits me, I know he's going to fix everything, and he just gets the first draft. <laughs> <laughs> but also going back to like the whole, I remember the first visit, we actually, I had gotten pricing to redo all the bunkers because the bunkers were in really bad shape. I don't know if you've gotten any of the bunkers that we hadn't done yet. Um, I don't know. And I, remember- I didn't hit him any. <laughs> Good. I had I was in the uh, one I was in the one that you know independently my buddy sent me a uh, uh, a text about your video of you rolling that approach into the third bunker. Yeah, that you put it, and he said that's so awesome. I go, yeah, I I I've experienced that. That was that was an awful <laughs> place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's not where you want to be. But I remember we told Brian like, we're hey, we're looking into doing a full bunker restoration. This is before we had done any work with that I had done any work with him. And he, we're like, what do you think? And he's just like, it's not a good idea. He just completely shut us down. And we're like, why? And he's like, your greens and fairways and tees need attention. Like bunkers is like more of a finishing touch. You know, because if you think about it, you can go out and play a golf course and not go in a single bunker. And so for the master plan, it was, you know, we got to do all these fairway expansions. Like, let's make sure we get our hands on every single fairway. Then we started doing some tees. We started with the worst tees and adding some length to some holes and not just to arbitrarily add length, but to get the whole playing back to what it should be playing, you know, get putting a four iron in someone's hand instead of seven iron. And, and that just kind of built momentum. And then all of a sudden the membership's like, Oh, what tees are we doing next year? Oh, we're going to do these three or four tees next year. You know, and then we got through all the tees except for one and 10, which are being done now along with the practice tee. And then all of a sudden I got to the point where it's like, well, now it's time to do bunkers. And that same thing. It's, I, I have a certain amount of money each year in capital and I get as many bunkers done as I can. I work with Brian to kind of figure out what we're doing. We classified them into like three categories. Cause what I learned with Brian is like, we want to maintain that old look. You know, you don't have to 
you don't have to do a project and make it obvious that you did a project. Like you can do a project, make the golf course better and not have it be obvious that, hey, look what they did there. Like arguably the, the, the best work is the ones that the stuff that you don't notice. Good restoration work probably it's like a good ref in, in sports, like great refs yeah. you don't notice. Exactly. Then one of the best compliments I ever got that for me personally, I ever got from Brian was on our 11th hole, the, the, the par four dog leg right near the, near the pond. We, um, that rock wall is there. We did that my second or third year. I had two guys down there all winter laying big rock. We were really proud of it. He came in for a visit. He went and walked the course. He came in and I said, and I said, Hey, what'd you, what'd you think of uh, number 11? And he's like, I love that hole. I was like, no, but what'd you think of the rock wall? And he said, what rock wall? And I said, we freaking spent three months building a rock wall between the Greenside Ferry and the Teesside Fairway. And he looked at me and said, well, it must be pretty good because I didn't notice it. And I was like, huh. You know, and that goes with our bunkers. You know, like we, we haven't broken into three categories. And A, an A grade is that nothing is happening to the exterior of the bunker. We're just going in and fixing the subgrade, putting in drainage, putting in liner, and putting our own custom sand back in. You know, a B grade is... Brian comes in and he marks out a new edge line and then it's, but we're not blowing it up. It's just, it's just, you know, getting a little like more recapturing flare. the scale or yes. Or, or you, with these architects, the way they look at things is just, it's incredible, but just how by flaring up this corner here, how that line of bunker sand will then also reflect off the bunker sand at five green side, which then it's just incredible the different angles that they look at these things from. But then, you know, we go in there, we do the new edge line. He comes and double checks it, maybe do some more. But then once again, subgrade, drainage. And then C is, yep, we're going to fully redo that. But out of 111 bunkers, I think he only designated 15 or 60 of them for a, a full redo. With Schaefer at Marion, I heard whenever they did rock walls, he would ask a question, who's built a rock wall? And if somebody raised their hand that they'd built a rock wall, then he'd say, well, I want the guys that had never built a rock wall to build the rock wall. Is that true? I personally have never been exposed to that. So I can't validate that. It, it reminded me when, when the person I was with told me that story, it reminded me of, of the McKenzie line of like, how do you build a great green, um, hire the biggest fool in town and tell him to make it fr- flat. <laughs> it, it's it yeah I, I i can't tell you how much i i've like i feel like i've evolved at somerset and like understanding like i feel like i understand the golf course and that you know we've gotten through a good bit of bunkers and a lot of the bunkers that if you didn't know that we did them you wouldn't know but they they drain now they're not a bird bath for how long they don't get destroyed in a storm and then even our sand we we sift, we, all the sand we pull out, we sift it and then we mix it with the new sand because you can't buy dark sand. Um, and it just all follows that goal of, I always just say like, it's like a real, like a true antiquer or someone that like wants to restore a, a car from the sixties and they want to restore it with all the original parts and not just buy the parts. Like, I feel like that's what we're, what we're trying to do is kind of bring back what it was meant to be, but not have it obvious that we, we did it. It just, it just kind of flows. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a neat way to do it too. Cause I think, you know, when you restore a hundred year old course, you don't want it to look brand new. You know, you want it, no. you want it to, you want it to play like it's new, 
in a way. You know, you want it to function like it should in 2021, but you you want that aesthetic. You want it, it removes the sense of place if you lose the the aesthetic of like if it doesn't look like a hundred year old course, then there's something maybe a little off, right? I mean, no, uh, without a doubt. I mean, I, I remember in the early years we had a lot of disease issues with our with our fairways, and the USGA would recommend you know regrat like killing the fairways off and you know i i considered it and i'd have conversations with membership and the biggest drawback to it wasn't hey we're gonna have to close the fairways for two months or this and that it was they're gonna look new you know they're not like uh my assistant uh steve stewart worked uh went out to oakmont for the amateur and i was like how are conditions out there i hear oakmont's usually pretty good like, what are their fairways like? He's like, they're they're tight like ours, and they're similar to ours. He's like, bent, poa, they got rye. And, you know, you might not want the rye on the fairways. You don't want to stand out. But at the same time, it just kind of gives it that old feel. Like, I when I, when I went and visited Scott down at Union League, you know, where they're doing that full grow-in, being, being at Somerset all the time, it felt weird to walk on, like, perfectly uniform greens, approaches, and fairways. Like, it just – I mean, obviously, it fits there. But for me, it just it felt it felt it felt odd. I can't remember where I was, but it was a real. I had never th- heard this from. I hit a, a shot on a course. I was with a superintendent. My divot flew into the rough, and I went to grab it. And he goes, "No, no, just let it go in there. I need different grass in there." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's these perfectly uniform rough. It kind of takes away from what rough is supposed to mean. When you hit your ball in the rough, like I said, I'm not a very good golfer. But if you hit your ball in the rough, you walk up hoping that you have a good lie. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And that's what the rough should be. It's just like a, it's just like a bunker. You know, you don't, I'm sure you don't want a fried egg, but, uh, you know, you're, you're just, I, you're I like it. It's a good branding moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, you're just, you're hoping, you're hoping for a good lie. I mean, it's really tees, fairways, and greens are, all, are really the only areas where you should get a, really consistent uniform surface but then like even at somerset with the fairways we have all kinds of little undulations and stuff so you can hit your ball down the middle of the fairway and you might have a downhill lie you might have an uphill lie so and that's what golf is it's interesting um the way you guys went about your your restoration over the years is is um i feel like you know obviously like bunkers were a big issue and i feel like bunkers are all, almost always the impetus for these big renovations, restorations that we see where it's a shutdown. And the reason it all starts as a bunker project, it seemingly, well, we knew we needed new bunkers and this is, and you guys knew you needed new bunkers, but rather than, you know, doing all the bunkers right off the bat, it was, we're going to focus on everything else and then get to bunkers, which is a very, you know, non-typical pathway to getting to what, you know, was one of the biggest pain points that you started with. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I'm not a good golfer, but I can go out and play nine holes and not go in a single bunker. You got to get the greens, tees, and fairways right and, and get your mowing lines right. I mean, especially, like, I had the luxury of being at Somerset Hills where, you know, they encouraged me to provide, you know, champion championship conditions, whatever you want to call it, firm, fast conditions. Um, but then I also had the architecture that then highlight, like, it kind of works as a synergy with how we present the golf course from a playability standpoint, but then also architecturally how the golf course plays. And when we're dry, when we're dry, there's not too many holes where if you're a good golfer, you're just going up to the tee and whacking a driver 
And it, as long as it's on the fairway, you're good. You're playing, you're playing different angles. And, and like you said before, you got to know what you're doing or else you can hit your ball on the fairway and still not be in a very good position. Especially with those greens. I wanted to talk to you about green speeds in the Northeast. I, you know, on my recent jaunt in the Northeast, on my many trips to the Northeast, I always walk away shaking my head about green speeds. Why do you guys need it? Why does why does everybody in the Northeast and I know it's it's reflective of of your members and and just general people in the Northeast? Why does it have to be so fast? Oh, I, this is a top. I mean, I, I can't win with green speeds. I'll tell you right now. So what I do is I aim for the masses. Um, I'm shooting for like a B to B plus. Uh, every every year with that because I will say that yours were the slowest I encountered, which what made me the happiest. Oh man, <laughs> come on now! No, I I'm saying this. I want them to be slow because I feel like that we're you're, the Northeast has this wonderful collection of greens, wonderful collection of golf courses that are just that are just having the most compelling aspect of their designs stripped away by, you know, the need to have faster greens than their neighbor. I, I agree. I mean, um, it, without a doubt, I mean, we have such cool greens, and when they get to a certain speed, changing pins is boring. Because, you don't like, have you just, any. You, you, you get into these stock positions, but it's – so over my time at Somerset, top three complaints I've had against me, and we're gonna we're gonna go in, in no particular order. This is great order. content. Nobody's ever told uh, us all their complaints. No, number one is uh, pin placements. Number two is pin locations. Uh, number three is location of the pins. It just like for me, it's it's they're most happy when they the greens are probably too fast because they go out there with their friends and they just they have a good time, you know. But we're it's kind of we can't do a whole lot with pin locations. Uh, but like in August, so we don't do like a standard aeration anymore. We do what I call a two week green vacation. So we don't tear them up cause they just don't need to, but I kind of just purposely give the greens a break. I slow things down a little bit. And we two, have when's fun. those two weeks? When are those two weeks? That's <laughs> when I'm coming back. Uh, I, it's usually, uh, like I said, we'll solid time greens and we'll do these other things that typically four Mondays prior to Labor Day. So I think next year it's like August 9th or something like that. And we purposely keep the greens a little bit softer, a little bit slower, and we have fun with pin locations. But the thing is when the greens are a little slower, whether it be time of year or being wet or on purpose, I go out there and I have fun with pin locations and I get asked if I got in a fight with my wife last night. Like, what'd you do? Get in a fight with your wife last night? And I pin on seven. I'm like, oh, is it fair? Well, it's fair, but I've never seen it there before. That should be awesome. Like, if I played, if yeah. I played a golf course all the time, I would, if I saw a pin that was fair in a location I've never seen before, I'd be like, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. But it's, it's, so, it's so hard because you have, you, have, you have people in the membership that know that those greens probably should be a 10, maybe an 11. And you can have diversity with pins, but the bulk of the membership, they, they enjoy it more when the greens are rocking and rolling. So I kind of aim for the masses during the year. We shoot for like an 11 to an 11 and a half. Cause that seems to the people that want the greens faster. It keeps them satisfied. The people that want the greens slower are okay with that certain events. We tune things up 
you know, and then the fall, if they typically just speed up on, on their own. So it, it's, it's a constant discussion. Yeah, it, it it shouldn't be a discussion. It it should be everybody in the Northeast that, that pushes for faster green speed should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> we do we do try to like for different days and different events, we try to tweak it with what we whether it be a ladies event or a uh, really good golfer event or whatever whatever it may be. But it's just like we sometimes all of a sudden they'll have an event where they want the greens at like a 10 and the next day they want them at like a 13 and it's like, it doesn't work it's not a way. switch. It's, it's not a switch. <laughs> you know what? One of those two days is going to be disappointing. They're either going to be a little too slow for this event or a little too fast for this event. So you can't like slow, I said, once they're fast, you can't slow them down. Ah, you just, we, we had, we had a member. I don't know if I remember hole 11. I remember every hole. All right, so we we had a member a member guest, and we went out of our way to make that approach as fast as possible. We shaved the bunker down just for the hell of it. And like, if you hit a ball short at all in that green, it was coming off and it was rolling to the bunker. And I sent the video to my pro, and I said, "What do you think?" He's like, "I don't think it's a good idea, but let's just go with it." But you're not allowed to sit there and watch. And I said, "All right, not a problem." Day one ended. He's like, "You got to do something." And it was a it was a freaking nightmare. So the next day we went out and like purposely like brushed the approach and didn't cut it just to slow it down a little bit. That's an approach, but I, I understand I understand what you're saying. Hey, uh, I'm gonna get you out of here. I'm I'm excited about your maple syrup season that's coming. I'm, I uh, I envy you. I I want to I want to see the how the how the syrups made. That's something that actually interests me. But um, thank you for coming on. If you go on my Twitter page, I got I got some info on there. All right. How do people find it? What, where's the Twitter account? It was R Tuxhorn, right? Yeah, R Tuxhorn. And then if you come back in August for our green vacation two week hiatus, maybe I'll save you a bottle. I know. I might. I might have to. I might have to just go out there in in the middle of winter and get one. <laughs> hey, man, we'll be there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Today's podcast was edited by the great Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg, as always. Um, I hope you guys have been enjoying the Superintendent series. Something that helps the podcast out a little is if you rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, really. So uh, if you don't mind, rate and review us, give us your feedback, and uh, we'd uh, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's good or bad. I, I'm always open to criticism. So thank you guys for listening, and um, I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Superintendent Series. Mm-hmm.